0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is part two of episode 40 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled Paul's Farewell to the Ephesian Elders, where we'll continue our discussion of Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today?
1: Oh, listen, this is one of the gem chapters in the in the New Testament on, on the topic of what it means to be an elder, a, a good elder of a local church. For me as a pastor, you and I, uh, Wes, are both elders at First Baptist Church. This is a go-to chapter on, on many elements of being a godly elder. There's lots of elements of, of role modeling, of faithful teaching, of shepherding, of caution concerning dangers to the church. There's so many themes that Paul goes over in this this farewell address. And uh, I've used it many times to teach other uh, men at seminary settings and in conferences, elements of healthy pastoral ministry. So we've got a lot to cover today.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38 for us as we begin. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. What bombshell does Paul drop on the Ephesian elders in verse 25? How does he know this to be true? And what's the preaching the kingdom that he's talking about?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to go back to the same statement, Mark 115. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is the is the place where God is king, where he rules over a people who are delighted to have it so. That's the kingdom. And how are we delighted? Because the heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has been put in and the spirit's been put in us, moving us to obey his commands. Um, we have taken his yoke Jesus's yoke upon us the kingly yoke the yoke of kingly sovereignty we have taken it on us that is the kingdom Paul has been preaching that message he's saying you all need to lay down your weapons rebellion against God the king against Jesus the king and come into the kingdom and when they repent and believe they come into the kingdom that's what I've gone around preaching now I want you to know that none of you among whom I've done that will ever see me again so that's the bombshell Mm. you're never going to see me again it's the last time you'll see me and here's the thing, in a time in a day and age, when there wasn't much mobility, when people could be born, live, and die within a twenty five mile radius of of the whole life. And you could see that in colonial America and all that. It was just hard to travel. Mm-hmm. Even with the Roman roads, not everybody moved around. You know, basically when you said goodbye to someone who is going a great distance away from you, it's like death. It was like a funeral. Mm. It's like I think about John Patton, the 19th century missionary that said goodbye to his godly father to go to the South Pacific, like 13,000 nautical miles away. It was like a a funeral. You're never going to see me again, as far as I can tell. How did he know? I don't know. But maybe the Holy Spirit warned him and said, look, this is where we're heading. Mm. And so you Ephesians, I'm not coming back here again. I'm hoping to go to Jerusalem and hoping to go to Rome. But I'm not coming back here again. So I'm just saying goodbye.
0: Mm. What does verse 26 teach us mm-hmm. about Paul's sense of duty and responsibility in the matter of the gospel? And what enabled him to feel clear of that responsibility? Yeah, this is a great theme, and it's
1: mysterious to me. It's troubling. I find it troubling. All right, let me read the verse. It says, now, therefore, because I've gone around preaching the gospel to all of you, therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now I cannot hear this except going back to Ezekiel three, and this is exactly I think where this idea comes from. Ezekiel the prophet is called by God into a prophetic ministry to the wicked, idolatrous, sinful nation of of uh, Israel, and he says in Ezekiel three, "Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them a warning from me." When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil way, that wicked man will die for his sin, but I'll hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. And again, again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil and I put a stumbling block before him, um, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin and he does not sin, he will surely live because you took he took warning and you will have saved yourself. This is very convicting for me. Hmm. What it means is that we have an obligation to warn sinners of the danger of their ongoing rebellion against God. We have an obligation to warn people that they're going to go to hell. They're on that wide, they've entered that wide gate and they're on that broad highway that leads to hell. And we need to warn them. The problem I have is who? Mm. who? Who am I accountable for? Everybody I meet? Everybody I sit next to on a plane? Every relative? Everybody I minister here, here to at First Baptist Church, I think I start to see it in terms of concentric circles. The closer they are to me and the more we know each other, if that person's not a believer, the more accountable I am if I don't warn them mm. and then on out. If I chance to walk by somebody at the gas pump and we nod and say, hey, have a great day, I don't think I'm as accountable for that person. But the theme is always on my mind uh, that... God will hold me accountable for their blood. Now, I cannot read into Ezekiel 3 that we are saved ourselves from hell by our evangelism of others. That is not true. We're justified by faith in Christ. We're not on a works thing here. But there is a sense that Paul gives us here in the New Testament of I'm innocent of your blood because I have warned you. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an obligation we have to be clear, to be clear of what happens if you reject this gospel. Paul has been clear about that.
0: Why do the elders need to pay careful attention to themselves as well as to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers and what does it teach us about ministry Well Wes uh,
1: there's some history
0: behind Acts 20:28 20,
1: This is one of the most significant verses in the New Testament on pastoral ministry Richard Baxter the Puritan theologian and pastor made this the central verse of his classic on pastoral ministry The Reformed Pastor mm. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock. And he has a whole section on what it means to watch over yourself and a section on what it means to watch over the flock. And the first part, keep watch over yourself, means you're a sinner. Romans 7, the very thing you hate, you do. And the very thing you want to do, you don't do. You have the seeds of your own destruction within yourself. Paul said, I I do too. So, you elders, you need to especially keep watch over yourselves. As First Timothy four says, you know, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch yourself. And so Baxter says it very plainly says, keep watch over yourselves, lest after you have preached to others, you yourself will be disqualified for the, for the same sins you warn other people mm-hmm. of. Will you warn other people about sins and then do them yourself? If those sins are dangerous, why do you not heed the warning? And if they're not, then why do you afflict people's consciences with such dire warnings? Hmm. Either the warnings are genuine because the threat is genuine and you need to heed it yourself or you need to stop troubling people with these warnings. So it's pretty clear which of the two is the truth. So that's Richard Baxter. So this is very important. Then what does it mean to keep watch over the flock? I think the overseer's episkopos means literally overseer to be in a higher position physically, not before God, but physically up on a hill, seeing the condition of the flock. Who's wandering? Oh, some wolves are coming over there on the left kind of flank of the of the flock. I better get over there and protect them. That's what episkopos means to me. It means to be in a lofty position, not to lord it over, but to see perspective. Where are we heading, big picture? Mm. Where are people heading? Be able to give people that big picture warning. That's what I think it means to keep watch over yourself and to keep watch over the flock.
0: What does it mean to care for the church of God? And why does Paul remind them that God bought it with his own
1: blood. Okay, so all right, first of all, I want to say what I said at the beginning. This is clear evidence of the interchangeability of the three titles we know the best for the role that we consider all basically equivalent. He called for the elders of Ephesus. All right, verse 17, you have the word elders, presbyteros. Then here, he says, "Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you" overseers, episcopos, from which you get the word episcopalian, also the ancient English word bishop is almost the same thing as overseer, Biscop is overseeing, be scoping above. And then he says, be shepherds. Uh, more commonly, we have pastors. It's a pastoral or a shepherd. All three are used of the same office. So it's important to note that they're interchangeable. Next, what is the significance of shepherding the church of God? First of all, it isn't yours. You didn't shed your blood for it. That's one thing to keep in mind. We are committed to this local church, but not like Jesus was.
0: Mm.
1: Only Jesus shed His blood for the church. So I remember a key moment in the Reformation of this church when I had a lot of people that were hostile to me. I remember um, there were some folks there that thought they had more of a claim to significant leadership in the church or influence over the church because they'd been there longer. Uh, they'd been there for 40, 50 decades. I said one thing, given that our church was established in 1845, none of us has been here the whole time, but Jesus has. And let me say one more thing. None of us shed our blood for this church. Jesus did. No one has a claim like Jesus. So I think it's just humbling for us to realize our level of commitment may be high. We don't come close to Jesus. We can't carry his shoes. But also, this is an interesting phrase, be shepherds of the church of God, which he shed with his blood. Well, one thing we do know is God the Father never had blood and never will. That's a human body thing. The word became flesh, and part of the flesh is blood. Jesus had blood. Therefore, Jesus is God. Mm. That's a very important verse in the deity of Christ.
0: Mm. Now he goes on to say that there are those who will rise up within the Ephesian flock. What's the nature of the wolf-like attack? And what will the elders have to do to protect the flock?
1: Yeah. After I leave savage wolves, you're going to come in. Um, Jesus said, I send you out like sheep among wolves. Um, he talks about false teachers being wolves in sheep's clothing. So the idea here is, is, and he's going to say, even from your own number, men will arise. So there's a clear wolf in sheep clothing thing. And what that means is they're going to look outward, outwardly like sheep but they really are wolves. So Paul in 2 Corinthians and we've done the podcast there. He talks about the super apostles and he said they're false apostles, they're servants of of Satan masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So just cuz they look beautiful and look so nice and all that, they are they're they're uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. That's what he's saying there. They're false apostles and they're masquerading. So watch out. So ravenous wolves. And and one thing, and you know, I just mentioned this in the sermon I preached this past Sunday, is sheep are vulnerable. Sheep need a shepherd. Uh, we cannot protect ourselves from, from the wolves. All right? We have no defense. Our defense is the shepherd. And the shepherd, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. So these under shepherds, what they need to do is watch out for wolves. Mm. And Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know them. You want to know who the wolves in sheep's clothing are? Look for the fruit. Uh, what is the fruit? Generally worldliness, generally a uh, desire for money, power, sex, um, a desire to be esteemed and, and lavished on and all that. Look for the, the Pharisee type thing in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful and love the places of honor and love to be greeted and, and have honorific titles and all that kind of stuff. Look for that. Um, look for worldliness. Look for material prosperity and all that. That's the fruit we're looking for.
0: What does verse 31 show us about the seriousness of the threats against the church and the need for constant vigilance (laughs) among the pastors? Yeah,
1: so I'm going to combine the answer with 30 and 31 because these individuals are coming from within the flock, within the the local church, and they're going to distort the truth. What does your translation say on verse 30 about distorting the truth?
0: It says, uh, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. All
1: right, so they take the truth and they twist it. So like what the serpent did in the garden. It's like mm. take some things, some of, some of them are true, some false, and just twists it all together. So there's this crooked twisting of the truth, and that's the danger. So you've got to understand it's going to sound right, but then it's not. Like think about the Judaizers, right? Think about the circumcision group. Sounds holy, Got to be circumcised, got to obey the law and all that. It's corrupt. It's a doctrine of demons. Mm. It's evil. Uh, even that phrase doctrine of demons has to do with uh, asceticism. People forbid marriage and they, and they forbid certain foods and all that, that. It looks good, but it's really a twisting. Yes, you need to live, live a self-controlled life but that's that asceticism is a doctrine of demons. So people that come along and take the truth and they twist it. So what verse 31 shows is this is a very serious threat. And I was weeping over you. I did not want you to be led astray. And he actually says to the Corinthian church, I I am in, I was concerned over you that just like Eve was drawn away by the serpent, that you might be drawn away as a bride of Christ from your pure and sincere devotion to Christ. I want you to be pure in your love for the bridegroom. Mm. Or again, Galatians, he says, uh, I am in anguish, like I'm in childbirth over you until Christ is formed in you. He is deeply concerned about the false gospel the Galatians are going over. So Paul's intense concern is what's on display here as he is weeping over them.
0: What does Paul mean in verse 32 when he commends them to God and to the word of his grace?
1: Well, and he does this in Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas. He says, Look, we've got to leave. Oh, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm about to get on a ship, and you're never going to see me again. And, you know, you got, you got wolves that are coming, you got attacks. I mean, Jesus himself said that you've forsaken your first love to the same church, mm. you know, decades later. And he says, If you don't uh, repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So Jesus himself is the threat there that Jesus is going to come and take them away. If they, and, you know, you think about history, Asia Minor, the Turks came in. I mean, the uh, sorry, the, not the first the Turks, the, the, the Muslims up from Arabia came up under, uh, I think, within a generation of Muhammad and took over this very same area. And uh, it was gone. It was done. You know, and there's a history there with the Byzantine Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire and all that after Constantine. But, you know, within a certain amount of time, by the 6th, 7th, 8th century, that church at Ephesus was gone. And it's pretty sad. So um, he says, look, I'm going to commit you to God. Mm -hmm. He's the only one that can build you up. He's the only one that can protect you. But I'm also going to commit you to the word. All right. And Paul, I love this. Paul says uh, in Romans 6. Verse 17, he says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. So, Wes, you have a a little boy, Oliver. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, have you and Annie ever left him in the care of another? Yes, we have. A number of times. Yeah. Would you use the word from time to time, use the word entrust
0: him? Yeah.
1: All right. So, what is the significance of entrusting Oliver to a caregiver?
0: There's a sense that we have confidence that while we're away, they'll be cared for by that invi- individual, that we've yeah. given them a trust. We trust them yeah. with his life.
1: And the entrusting, first and foremost, I would think is protection. Yeah. Right? And so here's the thing. Paul says in Romans 6, 17, the gospel is able to protect you. The gospel is able to care for you. Hmm. It's able to keep you safe. Stay inside the word. Well, he uses the same language here. I'm going to entrust you to God and the word which are able to keep you safe. Mm. And, and so I, I think that's pretty cool. It can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Pretty
0: awesome. Andy, why is the pattern of visible hard work that Paul mm-hmm. speaks of in verses 33 through 35 that we alluded to earlier, why is it so important for elders of a church? Mm-hmm. And why is coveting so dangerous? Right, they're, they're wrapped up together.
1: Paul says, look, you know, I worked hard for money and gave it away to my companions so that their needs would be met. I didn't take your money. I didn't covet anything from you folks. I wasn't in it for the money. I didn't put on a mask to cover up greed, he says in Thessalonians. We were not in it for the money. And you know that they, they could have been. Look, any anybody with apostolic healing powers, you know how rich they could have become? Mm. I mean, how much would people pay? Think of that, that woman with the issue of blood, the, the bleeding problem. She spent all she had. Yeah. All right. Imagine women like her or people like their lepers and blind people and never coming from all over. Yeah, I'm just gonna charge you a denarius. A denarius? For a healing? Done. All right. After a while, like, ah, 10. 10. Done. Mm. All right. Paralyzed person walks. Done. Paul, I mean, Jesus, when he sent them out, he said, Do not charge don't freely you have received freely give paul's doing that same thing here he's saying look i'm not in it for the money Mm. i could have charged and he does make the point in in first corinthians that it's okay for pastors to get paid for the work those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel nothing wrong with that but not in it like first peter 5 says not in it for money not for greed so there's a reasonable amount of money that pastors should be paid but beyond that, we're not seeking that. Paul didn't do it at all. And Paul went above and beyond the other way. He didn't take any money from some of these places. He he took money from some donors. He worked hard with his own hands. Fundamentally, I would say that you and I as pastors need to make certain we're working hard in the ministry of the word and shepherding and all that and not be lazy. So Paul's an example of extremely hard work. Um, he says, I worked hard with my own hands. And then he, he gives us a statement. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than receive all right a couple of things about that first you know with the whole uh, whole financial aspect he goes back to the days of the manna he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little so think about a whole population of Jews in the Exodus and you got some people who can't gather manna at all mm. they're they're invalid they're very old it's all right they're fine Their needs to be met. The young, able, strong young men went out with with baskets and took multiple amounts. And they didn't gorge themselves And all the extra they took. They gave it to the ones that didn't have it. And why? Because they knew that the next day there's going to be more manna on the ground. Hmm. So they don't need to gorge themselves. God will provide. And so he who gathered much did not have too much. And there's no point because it didn't save. It didn't keep. It turned into maggots the next day. Well, that's a picture, Paul says, of money. Your money will turn to maggots if you try to get rich on it. All right. So he gathered much did not have too much. And the same thing here. He's saying, look, the strong ought to help the weak. I have capabilities. I have tent making abilities. Maybe not everyone in his entourage did. We don't know what Timothy's talents were. Uh, we don't know if others had the ability to earn money, but Paul did. Mm-hmm. And so he helped the weak. and And my thought the whole time I was doing it is like, it is a blessed thing to be able to give. It's better, actually. It's more blessed to give than receive. One final thing, as you can see here on my on my Bible here, I've got that red letter edition. <laughs> and so we've got the this statement from Jesus, it is more blessed to give than receive. The thing is, that's not found in any of the gospels. Hmm. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So the Holy Spirit reserves the right to give us more information whenever he chooses. That's so good. it is interesting.
0: What does the Ephesian elders' passion for Paul say about his ministry among them? And what final thoughts do you have as we conclude this passage?
1: Right. One of the things, I was just talking to somebody about spiritual leadership, leadership in the church. Uh, I was talking to a young man about this, and uh, he was asking about attributes of leadership. I said, one thing, one basic test of leadership is turn around, metaphorically, turn around and see if anyone's following you. If no one is, you're probably not a leader yet. You might be a leader someday, but you're not a leader now. No one's following you. All right? So— the proof of the pudding's in the eating, all right. What kind of man you are can frequently, not always, but frequently, be seen in the kind of reaction you engender from people. So, what was Paul like, so that people wept at the thought that they would never see him again? Hmm. What 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 was it like? What what was he like when they all knelt and they're they're grieving and they're hugging each other? And and the next chapter twenty one. What does it say?
0: 21.1 say for you in your translation. It says, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight okay. course to cost.
1: Yeah, my translation goes a little more kind of juiced up after we had torn ourselves away from them. All right. Mm. So it's, I have to look at the Greek of parted from them. Mm. But the, the sense of it was hard to say goodbye. And we get that at least at the end of chapter 20. is certainly hard for these Ephesian elders to say goodbye. And they were grieved over the idea that they would never see him again. So what does it say to me? I would like to be that kind of a pastor. I'd like to be the kind of pastor who people would grieve over when I'm gone. And, and I don't want to think about it too much, but you know there's a wicked king in, in, in Israel, and it says of him he was a bad man. he was just one of the worst, and it says, uh, "He died to no one's regret and was buried but not in the tombs of his fathers." I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? If you know anything about kings and chronicles, it's like, that's a final word from God on you. Mm. No one cared when you died. No one was blessed by you. Everyone just went about their lives or if they thought about you at all, they're glad you're gone. Hmm. Well, take that and go 180 degrees the other way. You'd like people to to grieve when, when you leave. Not, not that it's an ego stoking thing, but you have been a kind person. You've been loving. You've been faithful. You've done this kind of Acts 20 ministry. People will grieve when you're gone.
0: Well, this has been part two of episode 40 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 41, entitled, To Jerusalem, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
1: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom.